We're in Psalm 80, and Psalm 80 is in the midst of, right, uh, kind of in the middle of book three of the Psalter. So you might remember that the Psalms are broken up into different books within the book. They're uneven divisions, and they're categorized roughly, not necessarily chronologically, but they're categorized roughly by theme. And you can sort of trace Israel's history in the big picture as you look at these different Psalms. And so book three deals a lot with devastation, with crying out to God for restoration, with anguish, with turmoil, with distress. And you can just flip through the Psalms and you can just sort of spot check a few verses in the next uh, next few Psalms and you'll see this. You don't have to read far ahead um, in order to see this. And the Psalms sort of bottom out at Psalm 88. The 88th Psalm has been called the black sheep of the Psalter because so many of the Psalms, it takes you through this crying out to God, remembering God's character, leaning on his deliverance, and then at the end, there's this triumph and God's going to come through. God's going to save me. Psalm 88 doesn't really do this. It ends with, even my friends hate me, the end. And you kind of have to read on to Psalm 89. And so the psalmist, it, it just sort of bottoms out at that point. Psalm 89 is a recollection of Israel's history, a long retelling of the story of Israel. And then we start book four, which really starts with a whole new tone and a sense of hope um, in the goodness of the Lord in Psalm 90. I tell you that to say you're going to have to hang in there a while with us as we work through book three of the Psalter. But I think this is providentially what the Lord has for us at this point in time. And I think it fits so well because I think most of us can identify with the struggle that life is, the difficulty that life brings. Did anybody have a week that went absolutely perfectly according to plan this week? Anybody? You can raise your hand. I don't think anybody did. Sometimes you get pleasant surprises where it's like, well, that went better than I thought it was going to. It happens, and we praise God for those days, but oftentimes it's the opposite. It didn't work like I thought it was going to work. This person didn't come through for me like I thought they were going to come through. The money that I thought I was going to have didn't show up. Or I made the money, but I have to spend it on repairs that I didn't want to spend it on. All sorts of things happen again and again and again. And we have to learn how to live in this world that just seems to be fighting back against us constantly. And so, so many of the Psalms deal with this. I want to remind you of the timeline We've looked at this a couple of times now, and I'll continue to bring this uh, to our remembrance and try to plot these psalms as best we can. It's helpful for me. I'm a timeline map person. Always helps me to put things in context and see where we are. Hopefully this is useful for you as well. So big picture numbers, big round numbers. We could be a little more precise with these if we wanted to. Abram, Abraham, was somewhere around 2000 BC. Moses, and then the Exodus events. Exodus event is some 50 years after this, and 1446 is the popular dating for the Exodus event. Then we have David and the establishment of the monarchy. Saul's really the first king. We'll talk about the kings a little bit more today. The monarchy's established. And then after that, we have the fall of the northern kingdom and then the fall of the southern kingdom. We've talked a lot about the fall of the southern kingdom, and it becomes one of those pegs in Israel's history, as we mentioned last week. Throughout any country's history, you can tell stories, and when you tell the story, when you tell the history, there's certain things that everybody, you just have to tell this part of the story in order for it to make sense, no matter what 
country you're talking about. Obviously, this last week was July 4th, Independence Day celebration. Well, if you're going to tell the story of the founding of the United States, you have to talk about what happened around that particular, those, those particular dates in 1776. In Israel's history, these are some of the major points. And the fall of the southern kingdom was so significant because in the southern kingdom, there was Jerusalem, which was where the temple of God was. It's where the Lord was. And so it becomes very, very significant when the southern kingdom falls. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the northern kingdom. So this map here, I know it's a little bit too small probably to read all the details. That's not important. The green part is the northern kingdom. The orange part is the southern kingdom. I think most of us can at least see that much. The green part, northern, orange part, southern kingdom. So we're going to focus on the northern kingdom today. Most of the Psalms really focus more on the southern kingdom as I said, because it's when the temple fell, and it become, it's more significant in Israel's history, but this is also pretty significant as well, so we're going to talk about that. So let's talk a little bit about the northern kingdom and how we ended up with two kingdoms in the first place. You will remember that once God brings his people out, back to our timeline here for a moment, once God brings his people out of Egypt, there's this period, and if you look at the timeline, between Moses' exodus, you have the conquest of the land, we, we could slot Joshua right in there, and then the period of the judges would fit until the establishment of the king, which was Saul first, and then David after that. And so we have this period of the judges where Israel is in the land, in the promised land that God has given them, and there's an establishment then of the monarchy. Um, but the monarchy doesn't last all that long. And so here's how it goes. You have the kings of Israel, Saul. I'm going to go to the big picture here. David, Solomon. And today I want to tell you a little bit about the story of Ishbosheth and how he plays into our psalm today. This is interesting because we've talked about the kingdom really splits after Solomon when his son uh, Rehoboam, uh, Rehoboam takes over and then Jeroboam, um, he's the one that comes in uh, and becomes the king of the south. So these two guys end up splitting the kingdom. But before that, there was kind of this quasi half split for a brief period of time under Ishbosheth, And for the purpose for the simplicity and for helping me today, I'm going to call him Ishbo, if you guys aren't offended by that, all right? Ishbo, I don't think he would mind. So what is the deal with Ishbo? Ishbo was Saul's son, and you'll remember that in Samuel, we see a few different important things happen. One, we see that Eli, who was the priest at the time, and his sons are rejected. There's going to be a new priesthood in Israel. Two, we see that Shiloh, which was the capital city of Israel, it was in the northern kingdom. It's going to be moved to the south. So sort of like in the early days of the United States, the capital moved one spot to the next. Well, this happened in Israel's history as well. Northern kingdom's rejected. Southern kingdom is in. And then Saul is rejected as king. David is anointed as king. But it's not that clean, it doesn't happen quite like that, quite that fast, at least. There's a power struggle between David and Ishbo. Second Samuel chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I'll just read you some of these texts. If you want to look at them, that's fine. But just to give you a little bit of an idea of what's going on. But Abner, <clears throat> the son of Ner 
commander of Saul's army took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manamim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbos, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. So again, the house of Judah which is the south, followed David. And so we have this brief period of time where you have the split, but it doesn't really last. David would come back into power shortly after, and he would reunite the kingdom for a period of time until after his son Solomon. So how did Ishbo end up falling? Well, it's quite a story, and it's quite a messy story, and it's quite, uh, it sounds like it came out of some sort <clears throat> of soap opera. So Ishbo accuses Abner, who had been one of Saul's commanders, his dad's commander, of sleeping with his concubine. Abner gets highly insulted at this, highly insulted, and he tells Ishbo, I'm going over to David's team. He was one of Saul's commanders. Now he's with Abner. Or Abner's with Ishbo. He says, you accuse me of this. You're not right. I'm going to David's team, and I'm going to make sure all of Israel follows me to David's team. All right, so we see this little fissure begin to develop. Abner sends word to David, hey, I want to have a meeting with you. I want to come join. I want to change my allegiance from your rival, Ishbo. I want to come join David. David says, this is where it gets almost comical, David says, okay, great, but here's what it's going to cost you. I want you to go retrieve my wife, Michal, who happens to be Saul's daughter, who was stolen from me. Bring her back, and then you can be on my team, all right? The Bible's messy, people. It's messy. And so he does. Abner goes, and he retrieves McCall, David's former wife that's now been given to another man, and we're told in the story that her present husband that she had been given to after she was stolen from David is following her out of the city crying because his wife's being stolen. It's messy. It's just messy. I would hate to be the one trying to decide who's right and wrong in this whole story. So they make an alliance, make a covenant. David says, all right, Great, Abner, glad to have you. You're on my team now. But one of David's people, Joab, sees this, and he had had a family member that was killed under Abner's watch. He doesn't appreciate Abner being back in the camp. So Joab, without David's knowledge, reaches out to Abner, says, hey, hey, one more thing. Can you come back to Hebron and have a quick meeting? So they go and retrieve Abner, bring him back. Joab kills Abner behind David's back. And David doesn't know about it until the deed is done. David's not happy about this at all. He goes into this deep mourning because Abner's been killed. And so everybody realizes David didn't mean to do this. This whole scenario scares Ishbo to death because he, he thought, well, if, he's willing, if they're willing to take out Abner, what does that mean for me? My days are numbered. David's a major threat. So, following me so far? I know it's a mess. So a few of Ishbo, a few of his leaders get together and they say, hey, they took Abner out. I know what we'll do. 
let's assassinate Ishbosheth, and then we will be endeared to David, right? So this is exactly what they do. They take him out, they kill him, and then the plot doesn't go exactly as they thought it would. David hears about this, he's highly insulted, and he's very angry, and he has them killed. So, did you get all that? Serves to unite the kingdom, and the threat is gone. Ishbo's no longer a threat to split the kingdom anymore, but in the process, there's a lot of people that end up dead. David, over and over again, we see him intensely, intensely loyal to Saul, even when Saul's trying to kill him, even the people that um, are trying to do David a favor by taking out his rivals. David's not interested in having it done that way. It's such an interesting story. So we move forward, and David is the king. And eventually his kingdom would be passed down to Solomon, not without protest from the other kids. Solomon ends up on the throne, and Israel is arguably the most prosperous it's ever been. We read stories in like 1 Kings 3 and 4. Solomon had wisdom. He had incredible opulence, wealth, silver, gold, all sorts of imports, um, all sorts of ships and chariots. Had it all. Incredible, incredible what's going on in Israel. And it seems like Israel is on the rise. It seems like God has established this man to lead. Israel's finally going to be a light to the nations. But we learn that Solomon marries many foreign women, is what the text tells us, and it becomes his downfall because these women that he marries, they pull his heart away and he begins to worship their gods. You say, well, what's many foreign women? 700. I think that counts as many, many foreign women. And this is Solomon's downfall. Solomon's told by the Lord. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, Rehoboam. And so we learn that the kingdom is going to split. It's inevitable. So Solomon's final days in office, he's living with the reality the kingdom's going to split. It's just not going to be on my watch. And so we come back to this psalm. This psalm is a reflection on this split that's happening in the kingdom. After Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, becomes king. Once Solomon is gone and off the scene, there's a military leader, Jeroboam. I know that's confusing. Comes back to town. He's a very capable leader. Rehoboam is very unwise, And it says that he went to uh, seek counsel. And what should I do? How should I govern? And the old men said, you need to lighten the burden on the people. You know what the young guy said? Stick it to them, Rehoboam. And you know what ultimately, in one sense, caused the split of the kingdom? High taxes. Something's never changed, right? Taxation rates to fund his lavish lifestyle. That's part of what is at least a contributing factor to the split of the kingdom. Once the kingdom splits, it's a big mess. Um, just a big mess, one after another. So I found, this, I found this little picture on children's Bible lessons, all right? And I thought, this is just too good not to share. Um, 
And my guess is, if I had you fill this out today, our Sunday school teachers, our children's Sunday school teachers would crush it. I think the rest of us would struggle a little bit. So what you're supposed to do on this children's Bible lesson, some of you are like, are you really doing this? Yeah, I am. Uh, Welcome. So what you're supposed to do is on the orange dots, you're supposed to draw a sad face, and on the yellow dots, you draw a smiley face. So, and then what you do is you take the dots and you stick them by the good and bad kings of Israel. All right? So Israel on the left, northern kingdom, Judah on the right, southern kingdom. Now, which ones would you say are the, are the good versus the bad? Um, that is, uh, that's, that's what they do. Um, so in this, in this kingdom, you'll see that there's only, what are there, eight? Um, eight of the good kings. So only eight good kings And there's no good kings that are in Israel. They're all in Judah. And this is the exercise. We're told, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. The prophets prophesied. The northern kingdom prophets prophesied. This is not going to go well. This is going to fall apart. So this is the context of the northern and southern kingdom and the downfall specifically for the northern kingdom. Well, that was a lot of territory to get us to our story here today, our psalm here today. But I think it's important because we've talked often about the the fall of the southern kingdom. I think it's important to note the fall of the northern kingdom. Very significant. So Psalm 80, it's a cry to God to restore. Let's read it. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel... You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You fed them with the bread and tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars and its branches. It sent out branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down the walls? So that, so all who pass along pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire, they've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, and the son whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. What a great psalm that reminds us of how to handle life when it gives us extreme difficulty. Three points we'll walk through this morning. There's a prayer for deliverance, a parable of destruction, and then ultimately a plea for a better king. We've talked about all of these bad kings that surface. They want a better king. Prayer for deliverance. There's a couple of things that are worth noting here. 
One, there's a refrain. You probably noticed it. If you look at verses 3, 7, and 18, basically this is repeated. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 7 says the same, and then verse 18 says the same, or roughly uh, 19, sorry. Uh, says the same. So there's this refrain that keeps getting repeated. Many of our songs function somewhat this way. You have a main idea to a song, and you'll have something that supports that, and then you repeat a refrain, uh, a reminder. And so many of our songs are similarly shaped. And so that's embedded right here in the middle of this prayer for deliverance. Now, it's also important to note that this prayer is very specifically prayed to the God of Israel. I know sometimes when you get in conversations with people, we use terms like uh, that are very nondescript to talk about God. Have you ever noticed that? People say something like the man upstairs or the big guy or the big boss, something like that. You've probably had those things said to you. Maybe you've said them yourself. That's not exactly the idea in the Bible. The people cry out to God, and they cry out to God in a very specific way. Oftentimes they use his name. Sometimes they'll use specific markers for God. And here we have, he's the God who led Joseph like a flock, the son of Jacob, name changed to Israel later. He was sold into slavery God established him in Egypt in order to save the people. Very specific, tied to the covenant promises. And then it says, you're the God that's enthroned upon the cherubim. Enthroned upon the cherubim. Now, this is really interesting. I think many of us, when you think of a cherub, what do you think about? Think of the little... uh, angel kind of thing that we have uh, that we have at Christmas, you know, the little uh, little cherub things. We always had one. We had one at our house, this little angel cherub thing, and it sat on this, on the hearth over the fireplace, um, and it kept falling off, um, kept falling off the hearth, and it would get broken, and different pieces of it would break off every time. And my mom started calling it uh, Lucifer. She said, it's the falling angel. <laughs> um, I said, maybe we just need to put that cherub away. Um, I don't know. So what, why would he reference a cherub? And I think many of us, it's confusing. Why would you reference that? And is that what we're talking about? Well, it's not, it's not what he's talking about at all. In the Bible, there's a few different touch points where we can gather information about these cherub. Uh, cherubim is plural. Uh, cherub is singular. The im ending pluralizes in Hebrew. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim. We first meet the cherubim. They're associated tightly with God's presence. So they're sort of the guardians, if you will, of God's presence. So Bible trivia, many of you would know, the first instance of the cherub, the cherubim that we see, is in Genesis. And it's when Adam and Eve have sinned, they're cast out of the garden, and they're told they can't come back, and God establishes the cherubim to stand at the gate and guard. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And we don't know exactly what this looked like. The Hebrew here, uh, scholars kind of are puzzled. A A sword that turned every way. That's sort of the best they can do. It's this big, it's this big sword spinny thing. It's probably more precise Hebrew. Um, It's like, how do you even describe it? 
oftentimes in the Bible when they're talking about God, the glory of God, you'll see words like Ezekiel where he says, it's like this or it's like that, sort of like this. You can't really describe it because it's nothing they've ever seen. So this is this sword, these cherubim, they're guarding the way back. Another place where we see the cherub is the Ark of the Covenant. You remember they make an ark. God told them to make an ark after the Israelites are led out of Egypt. They go to Sinai. They meet with God. Part of the instructions is to make an ark. And on the ark, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat. That was the, the meeting place of God with the priests. With their wings, their faces to one another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and on the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give to you. Then he gives instructions for the contents of the ark. Would look something like this. We we haven't found this. Uh, This is obviously an artist um, rendering. Indiana Jones did not find this. Um, I know that was that was not a documentary, (laughs) contrary to maybe what some think. Um, He didn't find it. We haven't found it. It's lost. It's been lost to history. Uh, we don't know where, where this ended up. Um, after the temple is destroyed, we don't hear from uh, the ark any longer. But this is what it was like. The cherubim on the top, and they signified the meeting place of God. Also, in the holy place, in the temple where the, this box would sit, there were cherubim that were embroidered all around the curtains. So, with that, come back to our text. The God of Joseph who led him down into, out of, uh, into Egypt in order to save the people, the God who led his people like a flock, the God enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. It's an obvious reference to the temple, to God's dwelling place. Really cool when you start to see how they are connecting the dots. This is the God, the true God. God is not this indistinct being in the Old Testament or the New Testament. God is not simply the man upstairs. We hear this sometimes, and I know that you've probably heard people say this as well. In our culture, sometimes you'll hear people talked about, and you'll hear this phrase, that person, they were a man or woman of faith. Now, when I hear that, I want to complete the sentence. In what? In who? Just faith in faith, that does nothing. Faith just for the purpose of faith. Faith in what? Faith in who? The Israelites aren't just throwing up smoke signals to some nebulous being. They're referencing and rooting their plea in history and in reality. The God who worked in the life of Jacob, the God who dwells in the temple. So this prayer for deliverance. Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, these are all places in the northern kingdom, which is why we believe this psalm comes to us around the destruction. Their neighbors are laughing at them. They're mocking them. Look at verse 5. You fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Can't you just imagine the taunts of their neighbors? Hey, Aren't you the ones that are supposed to possess this whole land? Weren't you supposed to be the nation that's a light to the nations and all the nations were going to come to you because you were so wise and great and prosperous? 
What's happening now? You're getting conquered just like every other nation gets conquered. The Assyrians are coming. They're going to besiege your cities. They're going to take your women and children. They're going to do unspeakable things. Yeah, your God's great, isn't he? The true God, right. They become a mock. Their whole faith is under fire. This is how they feel. Moving on, he begins to tell a story, and he does it with a parable, sort of this object lesson. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, it took deep root, it filled the lands, the mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches, it sends out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. And then he talks about, so why did you let it break down? So he's obviously using poetic language. It's agrarian language. We talked a little bit in the first hour at nine o'clock. We were talking about how when Paul went to a particular place, he would learn a little bit of the language and how to connect with people and talk in in normal, ordinary language in a way that people could understand. Agrarian language is just par for the course. That's how people lived and that's how they talked. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have much more experience with growing things, with planting, with gardening than I do. I don't have much experience with that, and I'm just not very good at it. I don't think I've ever cared enough to really give it a good run and make it go. But over the years, we've had our experiments with things like tomatoes and potatoes and green beans. That's the only thing we can make work consistently at our house. We didn't plant anything this year. Watermelon, we did that one year. And I was thinking about watermelon as I was reading about this. It took root, and it filled the land. That's how our backyard was. Any of y'all grown watermelon before? It takes root and it fills whatever land you'll give it. It's amazing. I grew up in the land of kudzu in South Alabama, and I was thinking about that as well. Um, it was kind of a Saturday morning ritual. We would go out and, you know, with our machetes and go whack kudzu. I'll be giving parenting advice later um, on, you know, good Saturday morning activities with your kids. Um, so what me and my dad did, whacking kudzu, um, beating it back. We lived on this little gully, and it was just constantly, it grows so fast, incredible. And this is the picture of Israel. God, you brought us out, you planted us, you cleared the ground, and this is working really well until it wasn't. Then all of a sudden, it's dead. All of a sudden, it's gone. And like me, if you've tried your hand at backyard gardening, at some point, you planted something, it looked awesome, and then you come out the next day, and the plant is done. Zucchini. I can't grow zucchini. It looks great for a little while, and then I walk out one day, and it's just, I know there's probably reasons for that. I just gave up. Some of you more persistent with that than I am. God, why did you do this? What, it was going so well, and here we are. It's falling apart. Verse 12, why then have you broken down the walls? so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. Lord, you just torn down the walls, the city walls. You tore them down, and now any person that wants to walk in and pick the fruit can. It's no longer protected, and there's even wild animals coming in. Verse 13, the boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field on it. There's nothing worse for the deer hunters amongst us than to find out you've had pigs move into your property and rooting up the green fields and they wallow around and they mess up the roads and they're just so destructive. And this is the idea. There's animals. There's thieves. Lord, what are you doing? Why are you letting this happen? 
Verse 15. The stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself, you've let this go. This was your special fruit. God, why has this happened? Do something about it. Now he notes that he wants them to perish. He wants the Lord to do something. Verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. He wants them, he wants God to act. This leads us to an interesting question that we've debated before. Why did the northern kingdom fall? All right, it's kind of a complex answer, actually. Why did the northern kingdom fall? Why did Israel lose their land? Well, we could say in one sense it was Rehoboam and his tax plan. That was actually, that's actually a legitimate answer for why the northern kingdom, or why the, the kingdom split at least. Why did the kingdom split? Why did this happen? We could also say that Solomon was responsible for the split, we're told. We could say the Assyrians, and ultimately we could say God did this. It's a complex answer. Why is Israel in this situation? Why did it happen the way that it happened? Well, it could have been all those bad kings that we had. This is why the kingdom is splitting and falling. I showed you the blank picture a little while ago of the kings, and here's the answer key. How would you have done? I don't know. Smiley face, sad face. There's not many, not many of the good kings. We could say, well, that's why this ultimately happened. It's because of all these disobedient people, and that's true enough. It's a complex answer. Lastly, we see there's a plea for a better king. Ultimately, this points us to a better king and a better type of kingdom. We have these various kings. They come in, they conquer. Another one rises, another one falls. The kingdom splits. The kingdom comes back together. They get exiled. They come back in. They establish new leadership. And it's just this constant cycle over and over and over and over again. What we're ultimately looking for is a better king. Ultimately, what we're looking for is a king that establishes a different type of kingdom. Verse 17, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son whom you have made strong for yourself. I think ultimately this is one of those psalms that points us to Christ. It's a messianic or Christological understanding of this psalm. Ultimately, we want the better, the better king. The king that's not establishing his kingdom through military might, but the king that would actually give his life so that we could be made right with the true king. Jesus said, this is during his arrest and trial, the mock trial. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. We're part of a better kingdom, a kingdom that the political powers that be, that the kings of this earth can't touch. That's ultimately what we're after and what we see. We know that this king is going to return. We talk often about the reality of the return of Christ. This is the ultimate Christian hope. And I want to take a moment and just read for you the return of Jesus from the book of Revelation. I didn't mention this this morning, but at nine o'clock this morning, I told a little bit about my recent trip over to Greece. 
um, and some of the sites that we were able to see and places that Paul went. There was also a little bit of John mixed in there. You might remember that John was exiled to the isle, the island of Patmos. And it was at Patmos that he receives a vision and we were able to go and tour Patmos. And I took some pictures from Patmos and I have to say, exile's never good, but Patmos ain't all that bad of a place to be exiled. Greek Isle is beautiful, absolutely fantastic. Now, at the time, probably didn't have quite the amenities that it has now, but had a nice view, I'll tell you that. So on this island, when John is exiled from Ephesus, he's exiled over to Patmos for a time, the Lord gives him a vision of this is how it's going to happen. This is what's going to shake out in the end. We're thinking about this better king that's coming. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe, And on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the God who's coming back. Jesus is, in fact, returning. Many people have misunderstood some of the things that Jesus says in his teaching. He seems so gentle, and he seems so, almost, I think some would say, he seems like a pushover. They need to read the end of the story. This is the king that's coming back, and he's coming back to judge. Yes, he's coming back to deliver his people. He's the one. He's the better king, the man on whom the right hand is on that's been made strong for the Lord. This is the one returning. This is our ultimate hope. Yes, we engage in the world. Yes, we want to see things improve. Yes, we want to see things better. But our ultimate hope is in the return of Christ. Pray for us. Father, thank you for your word.